Now, our world is full of symbolism. <clears throat> different colors symbolize different things, particularly when a, a nation or a state will choose a color for their flag. You know, a color that might choose, that symbolizes valor or symbolize sacrifice or, or symbolize loyalty or unity. Different birds symbolize different things. Doves uh, symbolize love. An eagle will symbolize uh, um, pride and, and um, regalness. We have objects in our world that symbolize things. Uh, a wedding ring symbolizes marriage, but it also symbolizes what is to be unending love between two people. Uh, baptism symbolizes that uh, identification with Christ's death and resurrection. When a person comes to Christ as their Savior, that they are spiritually participating with his death and his resurrection, being raised to new life. Well, our passage here this morning is full of a lot of symbols. And it's one of those things that, to me, justifies preaching. I was talking with someone the other day, that, and we were, we were talking about the fact that, that preaching uh, is a matter of the study side of it, is asking the question, what impact do I think this passage had on its original readers or hearers? And so that's the study side of it. And the, and the sermon writing side of that and preaching side of it is, is the desire and the, and the attempt to, and to prayerfully, enabled by God, to seek to make that same impact on a present-day hearer. And so that's the responsibility, and, and, and symbols really come up like, I, I hope somebody's going to explain this to me. Well, there's a lot of symbols in our passage this morning. Christ is symbolized as being a living stone, and then he symbolizes as being a cornerstone. Uh, the, the cornerstone was rejected by builders, and that symbolizes Christ being rejected by the Jewish leaders. Uh, we are described as the symbol of a, li a living stone being built into a spiritual house. And Jesus is, this symbolizes Jesus' followers formed into his church. And the living house is made up of living stones, but it's also referred to as a priesthood. And so what does all this mean? Well, we're going to get into that this morning. And so we pick back up in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses eight, uh, 4 through 8 this morning. And we read, as you come to him, a living stone, speaking of Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, before we go any further, you need to understand this, this statement, as you come to him, this, is, this statement is full of meaning of historical significance. Understand that the, 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 the tabernacle that was given to the Hebrew people by God and later the temple, they were privileged with the fact that that was the place where God met with humankind. Okay, God might have met individually as he saw fit with individuals, but the temple and the tabernacle was the place where God met with humankind, and the Hebrew people were the caretakers of that. Specifically, the priests were the caretakers of that. And they're in the Holy of Holies, when only uh, some points in the year the, the high priest would enter into it to make certain sacrifices. 
for the forgiveness of the Hebrew people. And so when he talks about as you come near, he's drawing off of that idea of the value of drawing near to God's meeting place. To draw near is a description of closeness, of welcomed relationships. Drawing near both individually but also corporately. And that this would be seen in, in many of the Jewish festivals when they would draw near to Jerusalem corporately to worship God together. And this, in this passage, understand also that all of the you words in this passage, they're plural. So you need to take them as y'all. We're all yous guys, right? Okay? So as you, as y'all come near, as y'all come to him, and in a New Testament sense, he's talking about this moment right now. Having drawn close to him personally, we're drawing near to him corporately together. So we continue in our passage. And he's talking about um, Christ as a living stone and we as living stones being built into a spiritual house, into a holy priesthood. And he explains that saying, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. There's those two words again. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. We're challenged to know here uh, in, in which group do we belong? In which of these two groups do you belong? Those who are able to draw near to God are those who have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior and King. Those who will stumble as they were destined to do, do so because of their disobedience. Not believing in Christ as Savior and King. And since we're free to draw near to God through Christ, we're free to see just what it means to be a part of his church. And that's what we're talking about here this morning. And so first of all, I challenge you to find yourself to be built well in Christ. If you know Christ is your Savior, he is ensured that you are built well in him. And we need to discover what that means. As I mentioned, this as you come to him, it represents our, our, our coming to him as a corporate body. But also the tense here speaks of a daily personal relationship of familiarity that a follower of Christ should have with God. So we understand how we were built well in Christ. First, knowing Christ as our sure foundation. And so I want you to see how you are built well in Christ first by finding Jesus to be worthy of all of your trust. He's described as a living stone which, which is pretty amazing, because you don't expect a stone to be alive, right? But, but it's living also in the sense that it's life-giving. He's a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And he also adds to this, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. Again, it says, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
And just as Jesus is unique in that he is our eternal living Savior, though he might be described metaphorically as a stone, but that doesn't describe him well enough. He is a living stone. And referring to Jesus as a stone must be understood in the light of the following verses that explain Old Testament prophecies having to do with this idea. The prophetic statements were made in the Old Testament pre- predicting Jesus' resur- uh, rejection. And these are listed by Peter in verse 7 where it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And we'll get to this when we come to those verses. But Jesus was rejected by men in accordance with prophecy. But what men were rejecting was their cornerstone. This is the crucial connecting point between, in, at the corner between, so if you followed a wall, say, in the temple that was built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, if you followed a wall to the corner and then followed it all the way down to the bottom, there would be an important cornerstone there that was a foundation for the structure. It's foundational in its purpose, and it carried the combined weight of the walls. It must be engineered well. And calling Jesus this living stone, this cornerstone, is pointing out God's authority. Because God calls him chosen and precious. And we'll get later into how the cornerstone would have been, would have been chosen and, 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 and made ready for the temple. But God calls him twice chosen and precious. Understand, when, when the God of the universe says, this is good and this is evil, guess what? That's good and that's evil. It's not like, oh, okay, I'll keep that. Thanks for the opinion. You know, I'm, I'm glad I have your, your perspective on it, but I'm going to find out for myself. No, when the God of the universe says that, that's what it is. That's what it means for him to have authority. When God says Jesus is precious, Jesus is chosen, the God of the universe has invested himself in his precious, chosen Savior. And he's precious to us not just because he's Jesus. He's precious to us because we need him. We need him for the forgiveness of sin. Added to this, I love the statement, it stands in Scripture. What stands in Scripture? Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. This promise was written through God's prophet Isaiah 26, over 2,600 years ago, folks. And it still stands in Scripture. That whoever puts their trust in God's chosen and precious Savior will not be put to shame. I talked with a friend yesterday about life insurance and selling life insurance. And he was saying that, that you know he feels good selling life insurance because if somebody has it, they're never going to regret it because everybody's going to use it. Because everybody dies. In the same way, folks, 
I can tell you with confidence that if you see Jesus as the one precious chosen Savior, if you put your trust in Jesus, if you listen to what God is telling you to do in obedience to Him, trusting Jesus, I can assure you that one day in eternity, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, and you're in eternity in heaven with, with me and, and all His believers, I can assure you, you are going to be glad for every bit of trust you put into His precious Savior. I can tell you that with complete confidence. Why? Because it stands in Scripture that those who trust in Him will not be put to shame. And it still stands. And you can take it to the bank. What stands is the fact that Jesus was the eternal, almighty God-man that walked this earth. And being almighty, he could take the sins of all mankind, the penalty of all man's sins, onto himself. And being eternal, he could pay for the sins of all people that have ever lived. And in his might and in his chosen precious nature, Death could not hold him. He laughed at it. He rose from it. And those who trust in him can receive the forgiveness for their sins and they can have his righteousness placed on them. And that trail that he blazed with his resurrection into eternal life is theirs as well. And they will not be put to shame when they trust in that and when they trust in him. You, let's say you buy a ladder, and the ladder is rated for 500 pounds. You know, that's a legal statement. And so you decide, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if that's true. I mean, go ahead. I mean, go out and find 500 pounds worth of weight and put on it, okay? And that company is saying it's going to hold. The God of the universe has said, it stands in Scripture, you can put all of your sins on Christ. You can put all of the sins of everybody that has harmed you on Christ. They were paid for too. You can can take every risk that he has led you to take. You can obey in every way that he has called you to obey. No matter the fears of, but what is this going to mean? What if they leave me? What if I'm rejected? What if I'm laughed at? And he has promised you, His statement is, you will not be put to shame. Plain and simple. He's put his reputation on the line as the one true source of absolute truth. You do not need to doubt his claims. Trust him. Understand, we are living in a world today with a new morality. See, God's word tells us that the God of the universe decides what is moral and what is immoral. But we are living in a world that has, in their mind, dethroned God, and what they have put on the throne is humanity. Okay? And so, with humanity on the throne, the new theology is this. Whatever a person wants, whatever a person desires, whatever sexual needs they have, there's nothing wrong with them. Because it comes from the human heart. Because we have elevated the desires and the, and the wants of the human heart to God-like level. 
It's called it's it's the end of humanism is what it is. And it's a new morality because what you are told is for you to say, but you know what? God's word says that's wrong. What are you called? You're called immoral. You're being told it's immoral for you to stand in the way of this person pursuing their desires. The reason for that is because they have taken the hum- they have elevated human desires to a god level. And that's what they worship. Folks, you can trust in the Lord. It still stands in scripture. Whoever trusts in Christ will not be put to shame. Being well-founded in Christ sets you up to grow also as a part of harvest. And I challenge you to find your fit in the local church. Find your fit as a part of harvest. We're told you as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. He's describing the the local body here. So so we see here next, as as followers of Christ, they're being described as living stones. We're we're like living stones because we, we... We're something that has no hope of living, a stone, but it's brought to life. And it's brought to life by its connection to the living stone. And we're not just brought to life. We're put in place with each other, being built up into a spiritual house. Do you see how Peter, the apostle to to the Jews, is writing to the Gentiles, and he's saying, look, you are being made into a new holy temple. Better than the one that was in Jerusalem. See the value that he's putting them on them. We are being built together on Christ, our cornerstone. So, so find your fit in the local church. One, by contributing to the church, giving of your spiritual gifts, giving of your effort, giving of your love for one another. One person said, personal devotion to Christ through the word also increases corporate integration to the church. Uh, the picture that came into my mind was like a 180-person a human pyramid, right? I don't know where I would be on that thing, but only young people. I gave up human pyramids 20 years ago, right? None of us except for the young people should even consider a human pyramid. But that's just what comes to my mind is, is he's saying that the local church is like built up with each one of us being individual stones in the walls. We as a local body are meant to be interlocked in our relationships. We're to be dependent, carrying one another's burdens. And together we're to be resting on Christ, our foundation. We're built into a spiritual house in the sense that we are to be corporately indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're built into a temple of God, a temple for God. But individually, here's the ticket, we're individually temples of God. We're built as individual sanctuaries of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're told in 1 Corinthians 6. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You know, when I traveled with Jay to Haiti, he and Mike were working on uh, this solar panel system. Me and Rick were kind of useless when it came to that, but... And and, uh, as a part of this solar panel system, I was amazed that there was like all of these car batteries 
just lined up row after row, and, and they, were ta- they were connected in tandem by cables to each other. And I figured out that, that the more batteries that were there, the more capacity that there was to store the energy that was being drawn through the solar panels. That, that's the picture of, of us being built as living stones. We're not just living because we're human. We're living because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. We ourselves, we're like those batteries. And, and the more of us that God puts together, empowered by him, the more power that we have together to glorify him. The fact is a, a, a church of 150 people who are walking by the Spirit is going to bear more fruit than a church of 500 or 1,000 or 1,500 that is walking in the flesh. It's not by might nor by power, but by His Spirit, says the Lord, that He is going to accomplish what He accomplishes. What was most significant about your ministry, your involvement, you're inviting friends to our fall festival yesterday. Wasn't all the people there. Wasn't the fleshly efforts. It was people being available, walking by the Spirit, showing God's love to other people as a fruit of the Spirit. You know, a third way that we see <clears throat> that we, are, we can find ourselves built well in Christ, that harvesters are to help each other to be built well in Christ as God's ministers to one another. Find your ministry as one of God's ministers. Here's where every analogy, if it, if it tries to contain the truth of God's word, kind of falls off. We switch from being t- described as being the stones of the temple to being the priests of the temple. Where it says to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Understand, in biblical Christianity, every follower of Christ indwelt by his Holy Spirit is a priest. We don't, you don't have to come to a priest to get forgiveness, to get grace. You don't have to come to a priest to confess your sins. In biblical Christianity, every follower of Christ is a priest before God. We're built into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. This was done, as we mentioned, Peter's drawing off of all sorts of uh, Old Testament situations and analogies. Within that tabernacle or within that permanent temple, the priests would bring offerings of worship. They may be offerings that, that are confession and seeking forgiveness of sins. They might be offerings of thanksgiving, offerings of praise. But it was the priest that would bring those into the temple. Only he could draw near to God's presence with those offerings of worship. But we are told that as, as followers of Christ, with God's Spirit indwelling us, that we are a holy priesthood and that we are able to offer sacrifices to him ourselves. And what do those sacrifices look like? Well, they're described in the New Testament in different places. Not exhaustively in the least, but we bring sacrifices of worship with the praises that you utter. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 
Understand, whenever you uh, praise his name here, or when you acknowledge God as your creator, or when you acknowledge Christ as your savior, you are offering up a spiritual sacrifice of praise as one of God's holy priests before him. We offer spiritual sacrifices with the gifts that we give. Now, Paul was held up in a, in a Roman jail and Epaphroditus comes to him from the church in Philippi and he brings support, financial support to Paul. And this is how Paul thanks him. He says in Philippians 4, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Their gifts were an offering of worship, not to Paul, but to God. The possessions that we share with one another are offerings of worship. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Probably first and foremost, the obedient use of our body. When God says, this is good and this is evil, and, and, we, and we allow those guidelines to shape our behavior, that's an offering of worship to God. That's what we're told in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I won't embarrass him to say, say who, saying who I'm talking about, but you know, one of our brothers here, as, as Dick Kendrick was homebound and unable to come to church for different reasons, one of his brothers here kept checking up on him. Dick, how are you doing, bud? How are you feeling? We miss you. We miss seeing you. How can I pray for you? Why? Because he's a minister of the gospel. Just as you are a minister of the gospel, if you know Christ as your Savior. I don't want to correct you sometimes when you introduce me to people as your minister. Really what I am is I'm your preacher. You're a minister of the gospel if you know Christ as your Savior. Finding Jesus to be worthy of your trust finding your fit in his church, finding your ministry as one of his ministers to each other. These are all a part of finding yourself built well in Christ. You know, the the hurricane went through uh, the Bahamas with sustained winds of over 220 miles an hour. Uh, You might not have heard this, but Sean Connery was there going through the hurricane. I hope that he was helpful to other people. Uh, afterwards, but uh, went through it without a scratch. See, Sean Connery's residence there in Bermuda um, is hurricane strong. I mean, uh, but you got to wonder if part of uh, the people that were staying there were wondering, are these walls going to hold up? Are these hurricane shutters going to hold up? Because how do you test something against 220 mile-an-hour sustained winds. So up to that point, everything was theoretical. Everything was untested. But when those winds blew, they found that they held strong. I want to challenge you. You have been told that if you found yourself on Christ, 
If you put your trust in him, you will not be put to shame. Put it to the test. Obey him. Stand up for him. Speak for him as your savior. Seek to bring him glory in your life. I think if God has promised you, I can promise you too. You will not be put to shame. Not at all. You'll probably be called arrogant for saying that you have the source of truth. You'll probably be called immoral for saying that someone else shouldn't live out the morality of whatever their heart is calling for. But you won't be put to shame in the end. God promises you that. Lastly, the big idea here is find your privileged position by trusting in Christ. We're we're called honored here when we believe in Christ. Where he says in verse 7 through 8, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Understand that when the temple was being constructed on the Temple Mount, it was, it was uh, established that there would not be a hammer striking a chisel on the Temple Mount. But the stones must be quarried and measured and sized and perfected at another location and then transported to the Temple Mount. And engineers today still don't know how this was done. Now, I'm speaking right now about the Temple Mount itself. But the largest stone in the Temple Mount is larger than a Greyhound bus. And all of the engineering capacity that we have today, no one can understand how it is that the Jewish people quarried that stone and transported it and set it where they did. But, but going further to, to the more refined stones of, of, of similar shape and things like that that would be used to build the temple itself, the cornerstone would have been quarried at, at another location. And I think we touched on this um, a number of weeks ago, but, but it would have been quarried and it would have been pretty odd looking. Okay, because it would have been uh, pretty large in the middle and higher, but off to the sides, it it would be going off uh, in one direction at one height and be going off at a 90 degree angle at another direction and another height because it was meant to sit in the corner as the foundation and then the stones, it's kind of the beginning of the next of the two walls going off from there. And so the picture here that's painted back in Isaiah predicting what how Jesus would be rejected is that the builders of the temple, the idea, the crazy idea that they would be standing up there on the Temple Mount uh, directing the construction and up comes this oblong, odd-shaped, not expected cornerstone. And they don't recognize it. The most important stone. And they don't recognize it. And they're like, what is this? I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. Get rid of it. They're like, oh, well, okay, we'll just set it over here. And as builders are going on, okay, bring it over here, bring it over here. And they're tripping over it. And they're like, will somebody get this stupid stone out of here? It becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
And Peter paints this picture of, of it being shoved even further back. And as they're working on the temple and as they're trying to get everything right, somehow trying to gerrymander things because they don't have their cornerstone, a spiritual house is being built up by those who are following Christ. Founded on the cornerstone. Founded on Christ himself. Two groups are represented here. The first group is y'all who believe. Remember, this is all plural here. Y'all who believe. Those who have trusted in Christ for salvation. They understand the honor. They have the opportunity to understand the honor that it is to be made into a living stone by the precious Christ. Him sharing his life. Bringing stone to life. And the other group is those who do not believe in Christ as the Savior of the world. These are tripping over the stone that brings life. The stone that is to be foundational to life. These are saying, well, somebody get this stupid, odd-shaped stone out of here. It doesn't fit into my plan. Why do they stumble? Because they disobeyed what stands written, and will not move. No matter how much they feel, they're right. No matter how much they want what they want, it stands written, and they will stumble over it until they submit to it. Anyone who writes off God's word as unnecessary or offensive or is destined to stumble. The Bible Knowledge Commentary mentions all who do not receive Christ as their Savior will one day face Him as their judge. Pray that You claiming Christ as your Savior, as the one sure foundation for life, might resonate with one of them. They might start thinking, I think I need something like that. I think I need a foundation that doesn't move. I think I need something that's truly precious to cling to. You know, I learned about uh, Rick and Sherry's house um, soon after coming to Crawfordsville and how, how uh, when they dug down for the foundation, they hit bedrock. In fact, I think you had to chisel some bedrock off in order to go down far enough. But, uh, so that became their foundation of their house. Can you imagine how silly it would be for somebody to be digging down there like, ah, oh, bedrock, great. We've got to get this out of here. You know, it's like a whole mountain of bedrock underneath there. No, it's like, this is your foundation. Set your house on that. Understand, that's the description of what's being described, of what, what took place. It's like, this, this foundation won't work. Let's get rid of it and let's create another one. Understand that that is what's being described as what's going on around our world. Understand that what is a man and what is a woman and the relationship that I have together, that is foundational to who we are. We are made in God's image, male and female, he made them. The relationship that he gave to us of the covenant of marriage, 
of that of that final relationship, that final commitment to one another that is foundational to what we need in our relationships with one another. It will not move people. And you're seeing people break themselves on that truth. It's unpopular to claim that the Bible's standard of relationships and and sexuality are the universal standard of morality. The whole reason why we need a Savior is because we do not live up to those standards of morality. So what happens when you toss the standards out? You don't need a Savior. You see what the enemy is doing to our world? But it still stands that people need a Savior. And people are still measured by God's standard of morality, which I don't measure up to. But in Christ, God sees me as if I do. Ignoring Christ as the way and the truth of the, and the life for salvation, a person is destined to stumble. Let's, let's remember again that our passage begins with the statement, and coming to him, coming to him, throughout the scriptures, there's a, we are given the opportunity to draw near to God as one of the most precious things that a person could ever have, the most precious things that a person could ever do. As I mentioned, in the Old Testament, this was done in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, in the temple after it. In Leviticus 9.7, it said, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. Draw near to the altar, they were told. But as, as I hope you've gotten from our passage today, in Christ, we have the opportunity to draw near to God anytime individually, and we do so in a special way as a corporate body when we worship Him. As James 4.8 tells us, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. And the book of Hebrews emphasizes the work of Christ and how his followers are able now to draw near to God in Christ. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And in Hebrews 10.22 we're told, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The whole reason why we are able to draw near to God is because the final sacrifice was made. There's no more sacrifice needed. There's no more temple needed that final offering of Christ's body and his blood that we celebrate in communion was offered once for all. And that is the whole basis why we are able to draw, not just draw near to him, but to come boldly, boldly before the throne of grace to find grace and help in time of need. We don't have to be like the priest, hands shaking, I hope this is acceptable. 
I am acceptable in Christ. I am secure in Christ. I am significant in Christ. I'm going to ask some men to to come up and and to lead us in our final song. We celebrate communion here this morning. We invite you that if, if you know Christ is your Savior, we invite you to celebrate the broken body and the spilt blood of Christ. Why? Because that is the basis that you must be reminded of. And as you celebrate that, it is a reminder that you will not be put to shame for trusting in Christ. Christ gave us his body and his blood to purchase our way to God. I just want to remind you what Paul recounts in in 1 Corinthians 11. Speaking of Christ, when he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Not the old covenant that required a temple, that required blood sacrifices. This was the new covenant in Christ's blood. You proclaim, the. he says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul concludes, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we sing this song, or we'll sing a second one if, if uh, need be, we encourage you to come to one of the tables and be reminded of the sacrifice that was made so that you could walk into God's presence. Father,